maybe trite <clears throat> to say it is my honor, but I really don't know of, a, of a, another way to put it to say it's my honor, it's my thrill, it's my privilege to uh, introduce to you today uh, Fitzsimmons Allison to the advent. And to tell you the truth, <clears throat> the colleagues over the years with whom I've worked and uh, that I most admire, I think all of them will say that, that this man had a huge, huge major impact on their theology and their understanding of the gospel of grace. And this was the foundation that he laid in the Diocese of South Carolina, where he served uh, for as bishop for 10, 10 years. I won't <clears throat> review his resume, uh, but we'll say the star of my resume may be that I was the last clergyman that he ordained uh, in the Diocese of South Carolina before he retired. If you haven't read his books, they are available in our bookstore, and I'll lift them up to you. The one thing that you may not know about, uh, about Bishop Allison is that uh, his hobby is, one thing he loves to do is get out on his backhoe there in Georgetown, South Carolina. He loves to work on the farm in his backhoe. I think that's kind of interesting. He will preach after we sing two stanzas, first and second stanza of him, 671. the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I must thank your Dean for including me in these talks and having, allowing me the great privilege to come back to this church. Uh, this church has meant a great deal to me from the time I was 15 years old and no place to go and some mix-up in the schedule and walked into John Turner's office over here. And ever since then, John Turner and, and Betty and Mabel and have been dear friends of us and our family. And every succeeding rector that you've had, I've been privileged to have a very close personal friendship with, and it's all culminated in your present dean, to whom I am most grateful. What I would like to do for these days and this great season of Holy Week is to enable us to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I know that may upset Episcopalians, but you would not want an impersonal relationship with you. Surely... Uh, we have known, and I have, and been a bit irritated by people who have claimed a, a personal relationship with Jesus as though they had just had lunch with him and could trump anything you have to say with the fact he told me. <laughs> That's not the kind of personal relationship I'm talking about. I'm talking about a relationship that is not impersonal, but one that perhaps you and I have never deeply had, and the Lord might grant us this week to have such a marvelous treasure. We are surely living in a time when the old jokes about the end of Western civilization 
no longer are amusing. A time when churches are in danger of becoming irrelevant and their accommodation to the increasingly coarsening and decadent spirit of the age, universities are in danger of losing confidence in truth itself. Human greed threatens our economy and burdens our grandchildren. Our debt, neither with debt. Neither of our political parties shows fiscal integrity. Legislative wisdom or moral leadership and the institutions of marriage and family without which no culture can long prevail are in danger of disappearing. But I have been in groups that would agree with all of that and I'm afraid participated by myself in asking God to have other people repent. <laughs> have you not heard that? Isn't it so much fun to, for other people to repent? And shouldn't they? But this week I want us to start with ourselves and not the Republicans and the Democrats and the universities and the Supreme Court. I wish for us to think about ourselves and a personal relationship with Christ. And the first word, we'll have three, and I'll only disclose one today. The first word that is a step toward having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the word repentance. I know that's disappointing. <laughs> I remember... In my parish in New York, I heard that one of my parishioners had sprained her ankle, and I went by to see her. It was not a sprained ankle. She had fallen, and she'd had a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. I hate the disease. I hate all these immune-type diseases. It's not like tuberculosis when something from outside destroys you. It's, it's like your own self is destroying you. The immune system that is designed to defend us, to heal that finger. It's a marvelous what it's already done. A, 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 a whole wheel on the back hole came off and I was trying to, I weighs 150 pounds and I was trying to misstep and it mashed it. And it's amazing what the immune system has done for that miserable finger. And when it doesn't work and it turns on us, in the myriad ones of these immune-type diseases, it's like your own soldiers shooting you. Tuberculosis is like your enemy gets shot, and none of us is going to get out of this alive. And to have your enemies shoot you is not the end of the world, but there's something poignantly disappointing to have multiple sclerosis and to have one's own body turn on us. I call it a fascist disease where that which was the army and the police that was supposed to protect us turn in on us and threaten us. She said what I know she said to Frank and other people have said to Frank why did this happen to me? Have I done some terrible sin? And I was able to say to her, 
Jesus said that of those 18 people upon whom the tower of Siloam fell, are they, were they more wicked than all the other people in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. So she could see that this was a random thing that has no relationship to some punishment by a God who would hold that against her and cause this to her. But alas, I did not finish the text. The text was, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. I didn't feel like threatening her with repentance and that she would perish on top of multiple sclerosis. Was I wrong? Was I? Should I have gone on and finished the text that Jesus Christ said? Of those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell, were they greater wicked people than other people in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Don't you all agree that it was good that I didn't finish it? I think I made a mistake. I think I should have finished it. The problem is, at the time I was misled by Scripture. You say that not just to make the dean uneasy. But the word... The Greek word that is translated repent is metadoian, change of mind. The Greek language had spread over all of the Mediterranean world and the gospel translated in the Greek language. It was a magnificent agency for the spread of Christianity but not a perfect one. The Greek experience was not an experience of special revelation about the heart. And the Greek language had no word to translate repent. They used a wrong word. So... To relieve Frank, it's not the scripture that misled, but the translation of the scripture that misled me and misled you. Plato and Socrates insisted that knowledge equals virtue. I just ate a big cookie not long ago. I knew better. I don't need that cookie, and I ate it. I am a veritable... Corrector of Socrates and Plato. And are you not? Every time you do something, as St. Paul wrote in the chapter 7 of Romans, the good I would, I do not, the evil that I would not, that I do, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I remember when I was a faculty member in Sewanee sitting around in the faculty lounge talking about a colleague who had just uh, left his wife and run away with somebody that was half his age. And the consensus was he was stupid. 
And I remember pointing out that he was smarter than any of us. He wasn't stupid. There was something wrong. It was sin. These Greeks have taught us that knowledge is virtue and ignorance is vice. I can tell you, as my son pointed out to me, Bernie Madoff was about as clever and brainy as most anybody you ever saw. Does anybody here, have you escaped the name Bernie Madoff? The Greeks were wrong. It's not our minds. We need a change, not of our minds, but of our hearts. I first noticed this when I looked in the context. Every time repent is used, the context is a, is a change of heart. Fortunately, we've just had a magnificent lecture by Alan, um, Alan Ross uh, from Beeson in our Mere Anglicanism yearly conference in Charleston, South Carolina. And I could check out with this great um, scholar of the Old Testament uh, what did repent mean in the Old Testament. And it was not, not repent, change of mind, it was change of heart. If you are in a people who have never seen snow and where the snow never occurs, the language that comes up there simply doesn't have a word for snow. The Greek language, not having the revelation of Jesus Christ and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, did not know and had no word, metacardia. But now I'm giving it to you. You have come here, you are blessed by having the right word for the first time, I believe, in your life. Is that fair? You can leave here with a word that's not metanoiaing, it's repentance, change of, of heart. As Emily Dixon, uh, Dickinson said, the mind lives on the heart like any parasite. Ashley Null, our common theological friend, he has taught us in his book, Thomas Cranmer, the doctrine, Thomas Cranmer's doctrine of repentance. And he had the promise of Oxford University Press that they would put the whole title on the front flyleaf and front page, and they reneged and didn't do it. So all you've got is Cranmer's doctrine of repentance for $47. Who's going to bother reading that? But the subtitle, the subtitle that they wouldn't put on there is renewing the power to love. Doesn't your wife need that? <laughs> Doesn't your husband need that? Don't your children need that? And don't you need it to renew the power to love? As Ashley has taught us, being taught by Melanchthon and Thomas Cranmer that what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The metacardia, the change of heart, leads to and be beyond mere remorse, beyond mere regret, to the renewing of the power to love. My wife has just had 
a detached retina and marvelous medicine has reattached it but she can't see out of that eye and uh, we have a new sink and she was complaining about it because it's supposed to have a soap dispenser and she was sitting there pumping on the soap dispenser and the soap was just coming out I said quit don't do that are you blind there's the soap coming out of there and then I realized she couldn't see it And I hugged her. And she hugged me back. Yes, there was regret that it's all about me. And it's so much all about me that I just forgot and didn't notice she couldn't see. Yes, I regret it. But she forgave me. And in that Forgiveness, there was an increasing power of love that you could understand. Now, I'm sorry, that is a, such a small little illustration and imperfect, but it at least points to the more than remorse, more than regret, more than self-dislike over repentance, more than all of these is recovering and renewing the power to love as it is met with God's forgiveness. When myself as sinner, it's all about me, let me forget she was blind in one eye She forgave me, and I promise you, I loved her more, even more. True repentance is not mere regret, but it's the renewing of the heart with the power to love. William Temple described our situation, I think, better than anybody else. To paraphrase, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He said, when we come into this world as infants and open our eyes, we are at the center of the world. And we look around, the horizon just depends on where I stand. If I move, um, the whole horizon moves. If I live in Charleston, South Carolina, the Ashley and the Cooper River meet, and that's where they join to form the Atlantic Ocean. That's just from the perspective of Charlestonians. I, I'm sure there are illustrations like that, that elsewhere. But it just means that as an infant, I grew up and I had certain things that happened to me that um, I like and they are pleasant and I call them good. And certain things that happen that, I, that I displease me or hurt, I don't like them, they are bad. So I'm not only the center of the world, but I am the arbiter of what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. And I'm not. And when I am and think I am and forget that I'm not, I do not notice my wife's left eye. When I know that I'm not the center of the world, I can see you more clearly. I can perceive how you feel and what you need. And how I can love. This is the 
great thing of not being the center of the world and not thinking we are, but that God is. Being misled by metanoia and the change of mind, I didn't have the word to comfort Mary in her multiple sclerosis, the metacardia, the change of heart, to renew the power of love. The message this week is the culmination of 40 days of Lenten repentance, of changing our hearts. This merely opens the door to the message of this week. The message of this week is not a doctrine. It's not a teaching, it is not a book, it is not a message left on your cell phone, it is nothing other than Jesus the Christ. All else is mere opening curtains to seeing. So it is wisely said that no one cares how much we know until they know how much we care. To change our hearts, we need to know how much Jesus cares. Abraham's promise, Jesus comes. Before Moses was given the law, before we had the law, much less obeyed the law, he comes. After Isaac has showed us what faith is, the trust to be willing to sacrifice his son, his only son, the son he loved, his very religious hope. Jesus came after after Isaiah, that is sometimes properly called the fifth gospel. And Isaiah describes what true love is like. The only thing that come up that can uproot and dig out the self-centered malignancies in our hearts and renew the power to love. And now he has come. God's love riding on a small donkey into Jerusalem. We can see him in our mind's eye. The eyes of our mind ride on, ride on in majesty and lowly pomp, ride on to die. And now in the eyes of our hearts, we see not a doctrine, not a law, but a person fully God, but also fully human. Lovingly vulnerable, suffering for you and for me, so that we may truly repent, metacardia, and have the courage to renew the power to love. May God forgive you and absolve you from all your sins and wickedness. Grant you true repentance and amendment of life and the grace and consolation of his Holy Spirit.